Welcome to this week's episode of the North Bible Church Podcast. Now, let's join our pastor as we open God's Word together. All right, so good to see you all. Uh, great to have Daniel on announcements today. I'm sorry we missed him on, on guitar, but great to have him on announcements. And i got to say, if uh, you know, the next time someone attacks me on the softball field, it won't be the first time. So... You know, those things tend to happen, but uh, great to see you all here this morning as we, uh, great to have you, if you're here with us online, great to have you online as well as we continue our series, as Daniel said, we're going to be in our series called Revealed, looking at the biblical book of Revelation, and say so we're going to be in our eighth week of the book, eighth week of the series this morning, and I still, I have to say the most common question that I'm still getting asked, um, and maybe if you're joining us for the first time, you may be asking this question this morning as well, is why the book of Revelation? And, uh, and I get it, and, and as we're getting closer to, to, to Advent, I'm also getting the question of, and can you believe it, by the way, Advent is this next Sunday, so Thanksgiving's this week, and then we start into the Christmas season. I know we say this every year, like it sneaks up on us, but I really feel like for whatever reason this year it is really, really snuck up on me personally. I can't believe we're saying Advent already. But at the same time, like we're, as we're approaching Advent, I've had people ask me the question of, are we going to continue Revelation like during Advent around Christmas time? And I think in a lot of ways it's kind of people's real nice way of saying like uh, Revelation doesn't seem very Christmassy. Are we going to continue going through Revelation because it doesn't seem very Christmassy if we do? And I got to tell you, I, I, those are both good questions. Uh, in fact, I think almost every time I've sat down to prepare a sermon uh, for this series, at some point, some part of me has, has asked that same question, why the book of Revelation again? Why are we doing this? Oh, this is so so crazy. And then secondly, uh, uh, you know, as we got into really planning for this series, we did actually ask the question, are we going to continue Revelation through Advent? Or should we kind of do something that feels a little bit more Christmassy, more Christmas time as we get to that season? And we made the decision pretty early on to say, yeah, we were going to continue Revelation because in reality, like it's a big part of the reason why we are going through this series is to understand, first of all, the book of Revelation is in the Bible, so we should be studying it and we shouldn't be afraid of it uh, because it is God's word to us. And secondly, we shouldn't be afraid of it because it actually is more than it being a book that's designed to scare us in some way. It's actually a book that is designed to give us hope. At its core, one of the things that we've talked about repeatedly through this series is that this is a book of hope. And what better time to talk about hope, of course, during, than during Christmas time. And third, I think in, in a lot of ways, this is a very timely and important book for us to be going through. And I don't say that just because of what we're going through in our world right now, although it is certainly applicable for that. But it's important, I think, for every generation of the church and every place to understand what this book is bringing to us. Because one of the great blessings of the book of Revelation is that it gives us perspective. And then more specifically, it gives us a heavenly perspective from God's view in terms of what is going on and what we're facing in whatever given situation that we're in. Whether it's a confusing, difficult situation, whether it's a time of joy, whether it's a time uh, where we need a little clarity. And how many times have all of us asked, what is God doing in this situation, right? We've asked that probably a lot over the past couple of years. What is God doing in this situation? Does he see what's going on? among us and what we're facing. Does God care? If he sees it, does he care? Is he involved? Does he really love us if this is what we're experiencing? And it's not just kind of what we're experiencing on the macro level, but in many of our lives, of course, we are struggling through some difficulties, whether it's health or whether it's uh, relational difficulties. Maybe it's a financial issue that you're facing right now. And I'm sure at times you've had to ask yourself, or maybe you've asked God, God, do you see what's going on here? Do you care? Do you have a plan for how this is going to work out in the end? 
Maybe it's just more about personal questions, about asking yourself in general, like, is life just really about trying to be as happy as I can and make as much money as I can? Or is there something more to the life that we live in this world? And in reality, I think all people are asking those kinds of questions, whether they're being phrased exactly that way or not. Some derivative of those things are questions we ask all the time. It's what it means to be human. It's kind of what God has put in us, to ask those big questions. And I think the book of Revelation is a really good place to go because the book of Revelation gives us ultimate answers to ultimate questions. I think that's one of the blessings and one of the beauties of studying this book together. And it's just one more reason why it shouldn't be avoided. And so this morning, we're going to be looking at Revelation chapter 7. And as we do, we're going to rejoin John's vision in the throne room of heaven. Over the past few chapters, starting back in Revelation chapter 4, we see that John was brought up to see a vision of the throne room of heaven, which is, represented as, which is representative of God's authority, his power, his direction, for his sovereign direction for all of creation. And then we see in, in one of the scenes, uh, starting in, in, in chapter 5, that there is a scroll in the right hand of God. And as we talked about, that scroll represents the redemptive plan of God. And so if we're asking, God, do you love us? God, do you have a plan for what's happening here in this world? The redemptive plan of God, which is contained within that scroll, answers that question. That yes, God does have a plan. Yes, God is working it out. And yes, God is working it out for good of those who love him. And God has a plan and a purpose for all that we see in this world, even though it may not look like it at times. And uh, last, last chapter, uh, last week, Wes took us through Revelation chapter 6, where we saw that there were six or seven seals on that scroll, and the first six seals of that scroll was broken, and in with each one of those seals, kind of an event happened or a, or, or, a, or, or, or a result happened as a result of those seals, and we find ourselves now in Revelation chapter 7. After six of those so, uh, seals have been broken on the scroll, we actually enter into what is kind of an interlude between the sixth and the seventh seal being broken on that scroll. Um, the seventh seal won't be broken until next chapter. Of course, the sixth seal was broken at the end of chapter six. And so we're in chapter seven, and there's kind of this interlude here uh, that we're going to be looking at today. And the question that we get to, I, I think, eventually is, what is this scene? Because there's a lot of symbolism and representation in this scene. And what exactly does it mean? And I want to communicate to you, I think this is really an interlude of hope in the end, right? If we're talking about the book of Revelation being about hope, this is kind of an interlude and in a scene that is filled with hope. And we're going to talk about why that's the case here in a minute. And of course, nothing could be more Christmassy, nothing could be more Thanksgiving-y, right, if those are words, than, than, than the idea of hope. And so we're going to explore that here this morning as we look at Revelation chapter 7. Does that sound good? You guys ready for hope this morning? All right, so let's dive into it. Revelation chapter 7, we're going to read the entire chapter, this is verses 1 through 17, stay with me, the, the words will be up on the screen, but I would also encourage you to follow along if you have a, a Bible app on your phone or if you have your Bible with you as well. And it says this, this is John talking about the vision that he sees in the throne room. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on the earth or sea or against any tree. And then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God, and he called out with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of God on their foreheads. And in verse 4 it said, I, And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000, sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed, 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 from the tribe of Gad, 12,000 from the tribe of Asher, 
12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 from the tribe of Levi, 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, and 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. And after this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? And I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more, and the sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Now, Obviously, there's a lot of symbolism and language in here. Some of it might be unfamiliar to you. Some of it might be a little bit confusing. I think when we understand where these symbols and images and and, and words are coming from, uh, it helps us understand it a little bit more. So uh, what, what we need to understand in this case is that a lot of this symbolism and a lot of the language that's being used here is actually rooted in previous places in the Bible, most specifically in the Old Testament. And I think once we see how those symbols communicate and where they originate from, we can see it a little bit more clearly in terms of what the purpose of this is, what all this symbolism means. But let's begin with the first thing that John sees when he, makes, when he talks about the description in this first half of the chapter, the first eight verses that we see. You may notice that the central action that John refers to is this action of sealing. In other words, those who are there before the throne are sealed by, it says, the living God, which leads to two big questions that we want to address in this. First of all, who are those who are being sealed, and why is it exactly that they are being sealed? What is this seal, and what what is it all about? Let's start with the people who are being sealed. Who are they? Well, they're described to us as the 144,000 to begin with. And historically speaking, uh, interpreting this number of 144,000 in this scene has really led to some uh, examples of how not to interpret the book of Revelation. I think one of the most famous uh, examples of this, which is is a misguided example or a misguided interpretation, uh, comes from the Jehovah's Witnesses. Jehovah's Witnesses actually look at this scene, and they believe that it's literally 144,000 people that are allowed into heaven, and once you meet that number historically throughout human history, which of course has been met a long time ago, they would say just people from the Jehovah's Witness Church get the privilege of being here, but once you meet that number, which has been expired a long time ago, even within the Jehovah's Witness Church, nobody else is allowed in heaven, right? Uh, which seems to me to be a poor church growth strategy in some ways, but at the same time is also probably a really bad interpretation because this interpretation has really been uh, uh, refuted in a lot of ways. It's not the interpretation that we're going to go with today. So what exactly does this mean? I think it gives us a good opportunity to exercise our interpretive approach. What does it mean to interpret it biblical symbolism, and what exactly is being said here in this case? Well, the first thing we need to remember is, again, that Revelation as a whole, and specifically in this scene, involves a lot of symbolism in terms of how we understand and interpret it. 
Uh, the numbers in particular, numbers and colors in the book of Revelation, play a huge role in symbolism. And, 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 there, and, and so what we see here is we see these numbers of 144,000, and John tells us how we get to that number. There are 12 tribes of 12,000 people in each, tri- each tribe that he sees. Okay? Quick math, I know it's early in the morning on a Sunday morning, but quick math adds up to 144,000. That's how we get there. But what exactly do these numbers mean? Because uh, although I, I would say that, that there is literally 144,000 at first that's kind of part of this scene, those, that number, that group of people actually points to something as a symbol beyond itself. And so what exactly does that look like? Well, let's take a look at this chart. Remember this chart I brought out, I think in the second week we were looking at it. Gives you the symbols of like kind of the, the symbols that occur throughout Revelation frequently. There's number, numbers and colors. And I know it may be hard to see that, uh, but if you look at the last two lines, this is what we're looking at here. That 12 represents, whenever we see 12, it represents the fullness of God's people. It represents God's chosen people and, and cosmic fullness, kind of how 12 tends to represent. And then the number 1,000, which is another number we see here, represents a large number Typically a large number that's too many to count. Myriads and myriads, or as we see here, multitudes and multitudes. And so typically, not only in the book of Revelation, but throughout Scripture, we see a thousand representing something that's not just a thousand literally, but actually something that's too numerous to count. So, when you look at what 12 represents, it represents, I think when we look at the 144,000, it represents really the fullness of all of God's people. Because a thousand, because if you combine these numbers, like take this for instance, 12, we, we've seen the number 12 in Scripture before. We've seen it in the Old Testament. The 12 tribes of Israel represent the fullness of God's people. Uh, when we go to the New Testament, what we see are the 12 apostles is how Jesus establishes his church. And from that point forward, this becomes representative of Jesus' church in the New Testament. So we've got 12 times 12, which equals 144. Again, quick math this morning. That's pretty good, huh, Ted? Like right on the moment, in the moment like that? Um, and, and, then, and then a thousand, right, is also dropped into this, again, to equal 144,000. And so the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 uh, apostles of the New Testament, and then we get a thousand, which is a number that's used in a place like Psalm 50 to refer to completeness or myriads or multitudes. So when you look at Psalm 50, for example, we're told that God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. But of course, we know that doesn't necessarily mean that God just, that's not just a reference to God owning cows on 1,000 hills on the earth, right? It's saying that God owns all of creation, and God owns it all on all the numerous uncountable hills uh, on all of the planet, and that's exactly what we get here. So the 144,000 represent then the totality of God's people, which are too many to count, both from the Old Testament, the Old Testament saints, and the New Testament, the totality of God's people that are gathered there before the throne. And that interpretation is backed up by what happens in the scene. Notice what happens in verse 4 and compared to what happens in verse 9, what happens with John. John says at first that he hears the 144,000, which is a strange way to put it, right? How do you hear 144,000? But he says he hears 144,000. It's a strange vision. We kind of go with it a little bit there. But then we get to verse 9, and what we see is that he turns and he sees a great multitude of people such that no one can count. Now, where have we seen this pattern before in the book of Revelation? If you go back to chapter 5, right, we remember when Jesus is introduced by the elders, the elders, first John hears Jesus introduced as the root of David, the king, or, uh, the root of David and the lion of Judah. And then he turns and he sees the slain lamb. That's Jesus being represented as a slain lamb, right? So in other words, he hears and sees two different things about the same object. 
And in the same way, in in chapter 7, that pattern plays out again. We're meant to see these things as one and the same. John hears 144,000, and then he turns and sees a great multitude from every tribe, every language, and every nation, which, of course, is obviously God's people all the way through the Old Testament and the New Testament, which takes us back. And so then the question then, if we've answered, like, who are these people? These are God's people from all throughout history, the faithful to God, gathered in the throne room, We've talked about who they are. Now, why is it and what is it that seals them? Which takes us back to the first part of the scene, where John describes a pretty remarkable scene there. He talks about four winds coming from the four corners of the earth and four angels holding back those winds. Now, what exactly does that mean? Well, we're told that they're harmful winds. So in some ways, those winds are meant to kind of harm and, and, and break and destroy creation. But the angels are also commanded to hold these winds back. Now, Winds can mean a lot of things in Scripture. Sometimes they refer to the work of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes they refer to God's presence and his activity in the earth. I think that's probably the most general uh, definition or interpretation of wind in Scripture. But wind can be good or it can be bad. And in this case, it seems to be a a very uh, harmful thing or a bad thing. We go back to Zechariah chapter 6. We see a very similar picture in Zechariah 6.5, which equates four winds coming from the earth coming from the ends of the earth or coming from heaven to inflict kind of judgment upon the earth. And what's amazing about this is that each one of these winds are led by a chariot with a horse at the front of it. And the colors of those horses are black, red, white, and gray. Now, if you hear last week, you may see the connection, the immediate correlation and connection to the first four seals that were opened on the scroll. Right, the horses that went out, the four horsemen that went out, went out on horses that were, yeah, black, red, white, and gray, or pale. And where these seals represent the reality of what happens in this world in chapter 6, right, described in the previous chapter as things like famine and war and death and injustice and oppression and evil, what this particular scene adds to it is the fact that this is God's judgment that is being enacted through these winds. It's God's activity to actually send this onto the earth. Now, you might ask, what exactly is this judgment designed to do? Well, it's designed to do at least one thing, especially in this scene. We'll get to it a little bit more as we go through. There's a big section of the book of Revelation that's about judgment. But at least in this scene, what it's primarily designed to do is to reveal those who are faithful to Jesus versus those who may not be. And you remember that one of the designs or one of the purposes of this book and this letter is to encourage those in the first century who are being tempted to turn their back on their faith, turn their, back on their, uh, turn their backs on Jesus in the midst of persecution, right, to overcome, to continue to stay faithful to Jesus. And what we see, what's obvious from this text is that the ones who are sealed are the ones who are truly the faithful of God, the new creations in Christ, the true church, And the question becomes, well, how do you know that they're sealed? I mean, it's not like we walk around with seals on our foreheads where we can come up with a black light and look and see who's got the seal and who doesn't. That's not really the purpose, actually, of this scene, even in modern-day application. The purpose is to say, it is more of a personal challenge to each of us who claim Jesus and each of us who might reject Jesus. But the message is that those who are sealed are known by God and they will be revealed through judgment and, yes, as it says here, tribulation. Simply put, the ones who are faithful will stay faithful, and the ones who are faithful will show it because they have not compromised or abandoned their faith, even in the midst of tribulation. This is exactly what Jesus is challenging the churches with at the beginning of Revelation. 
You may remember in Revelation 2 and 3, the seven messages to the church, Jesus challenges them in the end. There's different messages for each of them, like different assessments of how they're doing and that kind of thing. But the same thing that happens in each one of the messages to the church, there's one thing consistent to each one. Jesus says at the end, he challenges them to overcome. To he who overcomes, I will give. And then there's a promise at the end of that as well. And that command to overcome really carries us through the entire book of Revelation from that point forward. And the question is, will you be overcome by the world and by Babylon and by the beast that are represented here in the book of Revelation later, or will you join with Jesus as being an overcomer by your faith? Jesus once told a parable that illustrated this reality. It's commonly known as the parable of the sheep and the goats. And in that parable, the sheep are, are those who are the truly faithful of God, and they are the ones who are defined by their relationship to the shepherd. And one of the ways that they're defined that way is that they hear the shepherd's voice, they recognize the shepherd's voice, who of course is Jesus, and they recognize him as good. Now those who are goats uh, don't obey the shepherd, they don't run to the shepherd, they don't believe that the shepherd's voice is good, they don't heed the shepherd. And so at the end, when it comes time to sort the sheep and the goats, which is a picture of the final judgment, of course, uh, the shepherd knows who are his, and he brings his sheep to him, and the goats are sent away into judgment. Now, as we return to Revelation 7, the sealed here are the true sheep. The shepherd knows whose are his, and it's his process of sealing each one of the sheep to identify them as his true sheep. And there's important characteristics. If we're asking ourselves, what does it look like to be a true sheep of Jesus, right? That's, I mean, they're sealed, but what else is going on here? Well, there's a few characteristics that are brought to the table here. Notice that all of the multitudes are doing a few things. First of all, they're standing in front of the throne of God. So they've entered into the throne room, which is not only the place of God's authority, but it's a very personal place of God. Think about it as like your master bedroom. Like it's the most personal place in your home. It's the most personal place of the very presence of God. It might remind us of something like the Holy of Holies in the temple in the Old Testament. It's the place where no, nothing unholy, nothing unrighteous was allowed. So by the fact that these multitudes are standing there in the throne room in the very presence of God is both an intimate thing, but it's also a very important thing in terms of establishing the identity of who these folks are. These are the people who have been made holy and been made righteous by the blood of the Lamb. It's the only way they can come into the presence of God. Secondly, they are also, what's also characteristic of these people, which relates to the first characteristic, is that they're dressed in white robes. Where else have we seen white robes in the book of Revelation? Go all the way back to the first chapter, right? John's first vision of Jesus is Jesus has white hair, and he's walking around in a white robe. And what this tells us is that always that very same white robe that Jesus is wearing, which represents, again, if we go back to our chart, it represents purity, it represents victory, it represents new life, it represents resurrection. That very same robe that Jesus is wearing in Revelation chapter 5 we're meant to understand are the same robes that the redeemed are wearing there in the throne room. They are those who have trusted in the Lamb for victory, for resurrection, and they have been made pure by his salvation. And then finally, the third thing that they're doing is waving palm branches. Now what's up with that? What does that mean exactly? Well, palm branches were typically associated with the Jewish festival of the Feast of the Tabernacles. Where at that celebration, the Jews would wave palm branches as a representation of God's deliverance of the Israelites during the Exodus from Egypt, which gave them freedom out of bondage, of course. But it was also a representation of God's protection of them in the midst of the wilderness. 
that's why it was called the Feast of Tabernacles, because, of course, the Israelites had to build tabernacles or tents in the wilderness to survive, and they would often cover them in palm branches. And so those palm branches represented God's provision for them, providing when they had no food, providing manna in the wilderness, providing direction and providing uh, that they would stay alive even after they were delivered into the wilderness. And of course, you can see the correlations here. Living out a life of victory in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of a world that often feels like a wilderness, in the midst of a world that, especially for these early Christians, were experiencing persecution and threat the entire time. So, why, so then why are these people sealed? Well, they're sealed to be marked out as God's people. Similar to how the Israelites back in the Exodus were marked out as God's people by the blood of the lamb that was placed on the doorposts. They're marked out for the purpose of being marked as God's people, for being protected from judgment and being protected from, uh, for being protected from judgment and then finally being delivered to victory and freedom, which is symbolized by all these things. And they have this seal on them as their shepherd and king and they live victorious as new creations, as those who wave palm branches and celebrate the victory that the Lamb has given them. Now, all of this, the, the reality in all of this, I think at the same time, it's important to remember and to point out that God is not promising here to save his people from the natural effects of sin in the world. He's not promising to protect his people from persecution or sin or evil or suffering or difficulty that we might face in this broken creation that we live in right now. And the promise to save them is actually a promise to save them spiritually. It's a promise to save them for eternity and for the new creation. The promise is that they would overcome if they trust and have faith in the, in the one who has overcome on their behalf, the lamb who was slain. And this is where John wants to keep his readers focused in the first century. Right? It's also where he wants to keep us focused because they were facing persecution in the first century under the Roman authority and, 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 they were, and, and John was helping them understand that although God doesn't promise the difficulty and suffering and persecution won't come in this world, he is promising that if you experience it, it doesn't mean that he's asleep at the wheel. It doesn't mean that he doesn't care. It doesn't mean that he doesn't love you. It doesn't mean that he doesn't have a plan. The truth is that God loves you so much that he's taken care of your greatest need. Your salvation, your eternity, a restored relationship with your creator. Which as human beings is all of what we need. The greatest needs that we have. And none of those things can be satisfied by the world. And so in light of those things, what you may lose in this world, or even what you might gain in this world, pales in comparison to that. It reminds me of what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12-13. through 13. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. Peter's writing to a very similar audience that John's writing to, Christians who were suffering persecution for their faith in the first century. And this fiery trial refers to that persecution. He says, and while it may seem, sometimes it seems that way to us, right? We experience suffering, we experience difficulty, and it's like we're surprised that those things actually happen to us. Peter says, don't be surprised. We live in a broken and fallen world. And even more than that, don't be surprised that a fiery trial, which is actually persecution more than it is just general suffering, may come to you to test you. And the purpose of it is it tests you. It tests your faith. What are you really trusting in? Is Jesus really worth it? We find that out when things are taken from us sometimes, when we go through difficulty in times of suffering. He says instead, when you face those things, in, in verse 13, Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. 
And sure enough, as we look back in Revelation chapter 7, those who were sealed by Jesus are described as those who have come faithfully out of the great tribulation, and they are people who are celebrating thankfully and joyfully in the throne room. Now, I want to spend a little bit of time on this phrase, great tribulation, because depending on how familiar you are with the book of Revelation, you may have heard that great tribulation refers to just something in the future, a time where there's going to be tribulation that is greater than what we've seen, and it's specifically designated for a time to come. Now, personally, I don't believe that the great tribulation refers to only a time that's to come in the future. I believe, actually, that it's been happening all the way since the very birth of the church. I'm going to tell you why I believe that here, which is a couple of, a couple of reasons. First of all, if the great tribulation referred to something that was just in the future at some point in the future, some defined time in the future, it would have no relevance to the original recipients of this letter. I mean, think about it for a minute. The churches of Asia in the first century, this is where this letter is addressed to, right? And Jesus is challenging them to overcome. And so the tribulation that they're going through is actually, uh, as we've talked about many times, uh, the persecution that they're facing in the moment. John himself is riding from a prison island uh, in the Mediterranean Sea called Patmos. And he's there because he has been identified as the one who's teaching about Jesus. And so Rome throws him out on that prison island basically to die. And there's nothing in this scene, or really to this point, that indicates that this particular scene or this message is addressed to anybody other than, of course, or anybody, uh, anybody but the first century church in this context. In other words, it doesn't say, well, this doesn't matter to you, but this will happen at some point in the future and is not for you to understand or to consider, right? This is addressed specifically to the first century, and then by connection to us as well as the church. And it really seems to be describing the current tribulation when this talks about great tribulation that they are facing, given the threat that they're living under. Secondly, this one's connected a little bit to the first. John refers to the current state of the church all the way back in the first chapter of Revelation as the tribulation that they are experiencing. He says to those believers who are in the first century, you are my brothers and partners in the tribulation which makes a lot of sense given what John's going through. For additional references, if you look in the New Testament, Paul actually mentions tribulation 23 times in his letters when he's writing to the first century churches. And Peter talks about it multiple times as well. So what's happening here is in the New Testament, there's a background in understanding that the current church, whether it's the first century or the church that is now, is going through this tribulation. That wherever God's people, whenever God's people are persecuted, God sees it, and considers it evil, and considers it tribulation. And then third, we have seen the aspects, really, of this. If you just look at history, church history in particular, we've seen the aspects of this great tribulation play out throughout church history. You know, the more Christians are killed every single year because of their faith per year worldwide than the year before. That's a trend that's been going for quite a while. For most years, year over year, more Christians are killed for their faith all over the world uh, than the year before. And so when we say that there's not a great tribulation going, it's hard to say that to believers who are in China right now. It's hard to say that to believers who are in Afghanistan. It's hard to say that to Christians who are in Iraq or in North Africa, that what you're experiencing is not a tribulation. Um, that's often a distinctly Western or American perspective to have, but what our brothers and sisters are facing all over the world is tribulation. And look, the tribulation can certainly get worse, and it probably will get worse and more widespread as we move forward into human history, but that doesn't mean that this is not referring to a tribulation that has been happening since the beginning. G.K. Beale, I want to read this quote. It's a little bit of a longer quote, but he's writing about this reference to the Great Tribulation in 
Revelation chapter 7, I feel like this kind of really brings it all together, even though it's a little bit of a longer quote, so stay with me on this. It says this, the picture of the tribulation, this is mentioned here in Revelation 7, would apply generally to all Christians who suffer in various ways for their faith. The tribulation consists of pressures to compromise faith, and these pressures coming both from within the church community and through seductive teaching, and from without through overt oppression. Sometimes the persecution is economically oriented. At other times, the tribulation is heightened to include imprisonment and even death. But this tribulation does not occur only at the very end of history. The trial has already been set in motion in John's day, in other words, in the first century. And the great tribulation has begun with Jesus' own sufferings and shed blood. And all who follow him must likewise suffer through it. There's plenty of evidence to tell us that when John is talking about the great tribulation, when it's referred to here, that he's starting with the first century church, or maybe even all the way back to Jesus, as G.K. Beale says here, um, but will and will continue until Jesus comes back. It doesn't affect all the church all at once right now. It may one day, it may get worse, we don't know. We don't know exactly what that's going to look like, but this is what we're experiencing right now. And here's why this matters. It matters for this reason. We can say in the book of Revelation again that the one big command that we're given from the very beginning is to overcome. Again, it's what Jesus commands each one of the seven churches. As the 22 chapters of Revelation play out, there's tons of imagery, instruction, encouragement, hope that's given to us, but it's always within the background of that one command to overcome, to overcome. He tells us to overcome because he has already overcome for us. And so the call to overcome is less of a call to do, and it's more of a call to believe and to have faith in what Jesus has already done to overcome for us. So the challenge to us in the church today is the same as it was in the first century. Same for the church until Jesus comes back. To overcome. To overcome with our eyes set on the Lamb and to follow Him wherever He goes. To overcome by faith in what He has overcome on our behalf. To be diligent and to make sure our trust and our faith is in Jesus alone. To take an honest look at our lives and to know that our hope rests in Jesus and not whatever religious works I've built up for myself, not whatever ideologies I may follow, or anything else. Because we don't overcome by our own strength. We don't overcome by our own might or our own intelligence. We don't overcome by fighting tooth and nail for what we want out of this world. No matter how much strength or power or influence or money that you may accumulate, even if you had it all, you would not be able to overcome in this way and usher in the kingdom of the Lamb. Only the Lamb who has overcome can usher in His kingdom. And we overcome by trusting in Him. It's that simple, but it's also that difficult. Because we have to swallow our pride, we have to face our sin and admit that I cannot overcome on my own and I need a Savior to do it for me. I can't overcome my sin no matter how good I try to be. I can't secure my eternity no matter how much power and influence I gain in this world. No matter how much I earn, I can't take it with me. No matter how, much, how healthy I make my body, no matter how much I dress it up, in the end, my body will age and crumble and my health will eventually fade. And the multitudes of, the, of people in the scene from Revelation 7 model for us what our response should be in light of these truths. They hold up a spiritual mirror for us that help to, uh, that help to reveal our hearts. In response to knowing that Jesus has overcome all of this, they are responding in joy and thanksgiving. Which I think is an appropriate question for us to ask along those lines, which is basically, what is it that cause you, causes you to be joyful and thankful on a daily basis? When was the last time you could say that you felt thankful? And what was the cause of that, that thankfulness? For most of us, 
Probably had to do with something in this world that we felt thankful for, a promotion at work, uh, maybe a raise, a new house or a new car, a good health diagnosis. Maybe it was relational. I had a great dinner with a friend I hadn't seen in a while. I was thankful for that opportunity. Uh, Reconciliation in a relationship, something like that. There's nothing wrong with being thankful for any of those things. Don't get me wrong, right? Pastor Jay doesn't hate thankfulness. Um, Doesn't hate Thanksgiving either. Um, But the reality is, in fact, I think it would be, you know, not only is it not wrong to be thankful for those things, but if we weren't thankful for those things, there would probably be something wrong because we recognize their blessings from God. But the question that we need to ask in light of what we see here is that uh, when was the last time that we were thankful for kingdom things, for eternal things? When was the last time that we just had a deep sense of thankfulness for the salvation of God through Jesus in our lives? When was the last time we sat and just thought about being thankful for our time and our opportunity to be in the presence of God? I mean, the people who are gathered in that throne room, man, they're just thankful for being in God's presence. That's all they really need in that moment. When, how about a time when we could be thankful that God has given us new life, forgiveness? We could be thankful, how about this? We could be thankful not by resting in the comforts of this world, but thankful from being free from the comforts of this world. How about this? Being thankful for the kind of suffering that may take something away in this world, but in the end gives me more of Jesus as a result. When was the last time we were thankful for that? Remember, Peter says, be thankful and rejoice when you face those things because you're being tested. You enjoy the glory of God in the end when you're faithful. Now, notice that John, as John sees, one last thought, notice as John sees those who are gathered around the throne, he doesn't say, and I saw doctors and lawyers and successful businessmen and pastors and teachers and husbands and wives and parents gathered around that throne. Look, as important as those roles are, again, Pastor Jay doesn't hate teachers and businessmen and lawyers and doctors and parents, right? Um, As important as those things are in this world, At the same time, what you see is, when John looks and he sees that heavenly throne, God's people are simply described as those who have white robes and who are worshiping and waving palm branches in the presence of God. What matters here is what Jesus has done to overcome. It's his victory that matters, and so Jesus' salvation defines those who are there in that room. And one of the most beautiful things that Revelation does is give us perspective. It's an eternal perspective, and it's based upon Uh, ultimate things and ultimatums at the same time. Ultimates and ultimatums. In that way, it's a lot like how Jesus spoke. Jesus spoke in ultimates. I am the only way to the Father. No one comes to the Father except through me. And he often spoke through ultimatums. No one can follow me except that you deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow me. And of course, Jesus spoke with an eternal kingdom perspective mindset as well. And here's how that perspective is a good thing. There's an old adage that says that Nobody on their deathbed ever says, I wish I spent more time working. I wish I spent more time in the office. I wish I, wish I spent more time on the job site. I'll say it's, that's pretty true in my experience. I've been at the deathbed of at least a few people, and I've never heard any of them say, I wish I would have spent more time working. Right? You'll often hear them say, I wish I would have spent more time with my family. I wish I would have spent more time enjoying life. I wish I would have spent more time at church, whatever it may be. But I've never heard anybody say, I wish I would have spent more time working. And I would say a similar thing would appear here in this scene, right? If you were to say, if you were, if, if you were to tap one of those people on the shoulder that are worshiping around the throne, I doubt that they would say, well, this is great, but I wish I would have spent more time in life working. I wish I would have spent more time in life kind of earning more money and buying more things that I could have enjoyed. I wish I would have spent more time fighting with people on social media. 
or making sure that I had all my political rights or making sure I built my dream home. Or maybe a good time really for all of those things, maybe except for fighting on social media. But you get the point. And this week, we're going to gather around Thanksgiving tables. And if your gathering is anything like the ones that I've experienced in my life, a lot of us are going to talk about. These are the things that I'm thankful for this year. Uh, For others, and it'll be a celebration of the blessings of God. For others, Thanksgiving might be a difficult time for you this year. And the holidays that follow, Christmas and New Year's. Because for you, this might be the first set of holidays uh, in which something in, 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 that you're celebrating where something significant has been lost to you over this past year. Maybe it's a, a family member or a friend. Maybe it was a relationship. And in some cases, the very things that you gave thanks for last year at the Thanksgiving table are maybe something that are no longer here this year. Maybe it was a job that you lost. Maybe you gave thanks for your health last year and your health has deteriorated over this past year. Maybe your finances, maybe a relationship. Again, maybe you lost a loved one that was really close to you. And so maybe you don't see a reason to be thankful. Maybe you don't feel thankful as you approach the table this week. But this year, I think I want to encourage you with this passage, as we gather to be thankful, one of the purposes of this scene is to remind you of what cannot be taken away from you this year or any other year. And this is true hope. This is what you truly have to be thankful for. And because of that, this is the response of those who sing around the throne in joyful thankfulness. And maybe this can be an encouragement to you. Even when it feels like you don't want to be thankful, that you do still have true hope. And you still, do still have reason to be thankful in Christ. Now I want to read uh, for our closing prayer this morning. I want to read the last three verses of this passage, which is really... Uh, the, the substance of the celebration that's going on around the throne. These are the words that are being sung, prayed uh, around the throne by the people who are worshiping uh, there before the Lamb. And I want to encourage you, um, if you would close your eyes, bow your heads. I'm going to read these words for you. This will be our closing prayer. And I pray that these words would wash over you. They're as much of a praise and a song as they are a promise to you. And it says this, Therefore they are before the throne of God, And serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. In just a moment... We'll rejoin our pastor for today's closing thoughts. But first, we wanted to thank you for tuning in. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona, and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com. Now, some closing thoughts from our pastor. Again, great to see all of you here this week. Thank you for joining us online as well. 
Uh, as, we, uh, as we dismiss, we've got our, the Zaratis are our prayer partners. They're, they're over here to the left hand, my left hand side, the right hand side of the stage as you're facing. If you would like uh, prayer uh, as you leave this morning, they are there to pray with you, pray for you, whatever may be going on in your life. We also have other opportunities for you to uh, engage with us in prayer. We have prayer cards that are located on the table as you leave this morning. Uh, if you have anything that, there, anything that you would like us to be praying about, um, especially as we approach Thanksgiving this week, write down those prayer requests on that card, drop it in the offering stands as you leave this morning. We'll make sure they get to the right place, and we'll be joining with you in the privilege of praying with you um, through whatever is going on in your life, friend's life, family member, whatever it may be. And so I uh, hope you guys all have a very happy Thanksgiving. Uh, if you're traveling somewhere else, be safe in your travels, and we look forward to seeing you again next Sunday as we start into Advent. Thanks. Thank you for joining us for this week's message. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona, and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com.